Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the second part on our conversation on Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Scott, last week's episode was a big hit. We got lots of people interested in Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Um, we'll encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to um, to log in, to, to find the show notes, we've got a special deal for you. Um, this book off half off the listing price if you go through Fortress Press. Um, but there's also a great deal that Fortress Press has on a bunch of eBooks, don't they? They do. This book by E.P. Sanders is... Um is a gem of a book and I'm, I'm hoping that people will read it. Yeah. So we've um, had a great conversation. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I'd encourage you to um, go back and, and check out what that's all about um, in our previous episode. But today we're jumping into the um, first part of it and it's on Tananic. Did I say that right, Scott? I don't think I quite did. You got an extra N in there. Tana Itic. Tanaitic literature. Um, yes. Tell us, what is that all about? What's that? Um, yeah. What's that literature from? And why does E.P. Sanders look at it in his? All right, it is literature um, from the Jewish. It is a group of people, of leaders, of teachers, from the first and second century A.D. in the Jewish world, uh, who often are called rabbis. That's People refer to the rabbinic literature, and often enough, they're referring to the Tanai, the Tanaim, or the Tanaim, and they are the foundation of a text called the Mishnah, which is the earliest record, full record, of Jewish traditions about what it means to be an observant Jew. And many Christians have used Tanaitic literature or the rabbis for many years, for centuries, to understand the New Testament. And what we have in the Mishnah is recorded a, a century later than that. And then it was developed uh, in another tradition called Tosefta, which is largely similar. But then it was fully developed in a set of books, in a big collection of books called the Talmud, and that is uh, beyond the Tanaim, and it includes the people often called the Amorayim. And they are another group of teachers, and they interpreted the rulings of the, Tan the uh, Tanaim, who basically worked out in precise detail what it meant to be observant and to follow the law. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I think is an important observation is to realize that though there are certainly um, clarifying markers on what is Judaism, there were numbers of schools of thought within the overall concept of, of what's first century Judaism. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, yeah, there is. Um, I mean, Josephus tells us there were roughly four big groups, but he's just given... Ball, uh, ballpark uh, stereotypes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, um, and the Zealots. Those are his four 
But in addition, there's there's groups in different places, and then you have to talk about the priests, and you have to talk about local leaders who are as as much political and and um, say local leader type people uh, as as well. So it's it's a complex world, and uh, it's it's like saying uh, in the United States either you're a Baptist or you're a Catholic. If you say that, you know we all go well that doesn't really cover the ground. And so um, it's not fair to Judaism to reduce it to one group. And what, what has happened in the history of Christian interpretation is to reduce the, um, to, is to reduce Judaism to Pharisaism and to reduce Pharisaism to the rabbis. These are, both of those steps are very serious mistakes, but we want to look today at both how Christians characterized Judaism uh, as a foil over against which they explained the Christian faith, and then look at basic at the basic ideas of what the Tanaim believed. So, um, yeah, I, I'll see if you have something to say on that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't on. think you know I got a lot to say on that. My question will be maybe you'll cover it in your. Um, you know, explanation on the the way Christians have used it as a foil, but Sanders goes through a lot about scholarly history um, that suggests Judaism is all about works righteousness and that foil over and against Christianity. How much do you feel the reformers like Martin Luther is behind that work that he catalogs? Well, it's not simple. This is not simple, but um, Jesus is is um, in the face of a group of people called Pharisees. All right. They don't represent all Pharisees, uh, but these are his opponents. These are the people that he ran into trouble with. And probably earliest Christians ran into trouble with Pharisees. And that became a springboard in the second and third century in very negative ways for early Christians to look at all Jews as you know, some kind of, uh, you know, false, false people. And they were very critical of many Jews and, and it got very negative. But by the time of Luther, Luther himself wrote, wrote, especially later in his life. And, you know, my, my interest is not very much in the Reformation understanding of Judaism, but, um, Luther late in his life wrote some vitriolic, nasty, dangerous stuff that fueled some of the Holocaust. But it is the 19th and 20th century, especially, where trends developed of understanding what Judaism was. And and some positions were hardened on the basis of some Jewish texts without a very good awareness of, of, of a fullness of Jewish texts. And I one time had a conversation with Ed Sanders, E.P. Sanders, in which he 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 just talked me talked to me about how he had sat down with a rabbi in Israel and worked his way through the Mishnah, uh, so that he would understand the Mishnah in Jewish terms, because we tend to try to read Jewish literature or Greco-Roman literature in light of our own theological persuasions and categories. 
and it can lead to very serious misunderstandings of Judaism. A recent book by Kevin Rowe, a professor at Duke called One True Life, really did a good job of showing how to understand other literature uh, on its own terms and then comparing on its own terms. And so Sanders's mission was to understand Judaism on its own terms. But in doing so, he discovered he discovered that Christians were were seriously, uh, not all Christians, but most Christian literature, especially the literature coming out of Germany that was shaping how Christians in the United States, professors and authors and pastors were describing Judaism. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll put it this way. At, when I came of age as a New Testament professor, the definitive source for understanding the New Testament's relationship to Judaism was a five plus two small thin volumes of in German by two scholars named Strach and Billerbeck. It was a five-volume set on the New Testament. It was like a commentary on the New Testament in light of Talmud and Midrash, so uh, in light of Jewish sources. That was the basis for what many people thought of Judaism. People read Joachim Jeremias and these others. But Sanders goes behind them. And and uh, Chaz, I want to dip down into a five-point summary that Sanders has of how Christians understood Judaism, because this becomes fundamental for how Christians interpret texts in the New Testament and understand the Christian faith. The first one is this. The principal element, he says, and I'm quoting from page 54 on his stuff on Tanaitic literature, the principal element is the theory that works earn salvation, that one's fate is determined by weighing fulfillments against transgressions. So that's the first point, that this is the way Christians describe Judaism. It was about works righteousness. Then second, he said, maintaining this view necessarily involves denying or getting around in some other way the grace of God in the election. So everybody knows that the Old Testament teaches that God elected Israel, but when you start with everything being based on weighing fulfillments against transgressions, it ends up being against grace. Now, John Barclay has worked this out in different ways that differs somewhat with Sanders. A third aspect of Weber's view, Sanders says, which is also tied to the theory of salvation by works, is that is that of establishing the establishment of merit and the possibility of a transfer of merit at the final judgment. The fourth element has to do with the attitude supposedly reflected in rabbinic literature, the uncertainty of salvation mixed with the self-righteous feeling of accomplishment. How many times have we heard people talk about Pharisees being insecure, wondering if they're going to be saved, getting up every day, wondering if they've kept enough laws? This actually comes from Puritanism more than Judaism. Jews did not wake up in the morning wondering if they were going to be saved. They didn't ask that question primarily anyway. If they, if they woke up in the morning wondering about whether they'd make it to the Olam Haba, the, the age to come, 
uh, they would have said, of course we were, because we're Jews and we are covenant people of God. The final view is his view that God was inaccessible, uh, and that is that God was so distant and holy that uh, people could not relate to him in personally intimate ways. Now, I think Sanders would say that this is not um, held by everybody to the same degree, but these are the principal themes that emerged out of German scholarship in the 19th and 20th century that impacted how Christians understand Jews and Judaism. So this is, this is critical. Sanders's quest is to map what Judaism was actually like. Yeah, so you said you've got some of those um, categories there from what what he's what he's mapped that it's not just about some of these assumptions, but that from these texts, when we not just look through them with New Testament eyes, but to let them speak on their own terms, they have some categories that he finds, right? Yes. Now here here's the biggest the biggest category for E. P. Sanders, and this um, is is um, everywhere in his his teaching about Judaism. It's called covenantal nomism. Mm -hmm. Covenantal nomism means people enter the covenant, and as covenant members, they obey the law. Nomism is about law. They obey the law because they're in the covenant. So that obedience to the law, which leads to works, that is, um, obedience, observance is works, is not, is not how one enters the covenant. Sanders emphasized it is how one maintains one's relationship in the covenant. So in the sense, in the, in the idea that Jews were meritoriously seeking salvation on the basis of their works, Sanders would say that is a, a mischaracterization, a misdescription of how Judaism actually worked, because you can't start with Judaism with works or obedience. You must start with covenant. Sanders was once criticized in some scholarship for the absence of covenant language in some of this literature. And Sanders, I think, made a pretty good case that it is assumed everywhere the way we assume air um, outside. So here's a summary of Sanders' understanding of Tanaitic literature. In other words, this is the way he would describe the overall pattern of rabbinic religion. All right. Uh, the pattern is this. Notice where he starts. God has chosen Israel. So it starts with God. John Barclay calls this the priority of grace. And Israel has accepted the election. That is sort of uh, the lang almost the language of evangelical born-againism, as a sort of accepting the covenant into your heart. He doesn't say it that way. But in other words, they've embraced, they've accepted that this is God's covenant with them, and they're going to live by it. In his role as king, God gave Israel commandments which they are to obey as best they can. Judaism did not teach that you have to obey every command to be righteous. 
The Old Testament does not teach that. What it says is, if you disobey, if you break a commandment, you have to go through the rituals of sacrifice and atonement. And therefore, once you commit, once you go through the atonement process, you are back in, in good standing in the covenant again. So they never, because they have the Day of Atonement every year, they never believed you had to be sinless to be righteous. If you sin, you confess, and you offer a sacrifice, and your sins are forgiven. That's what Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is all about. Then he adds that obedience is rewarded. This is everywhere in the Old Testament, and it is not at all absent from the New Testament. And disobedience punished. Again, everywhere in the Old Testament, think of Deuteronomy 28, think of Leviticus 26, and disobedience, and think in the New Testament. Jesus talks about reward. We have these whole scenes of judgment based upon works. So there is reward for obedience and judgment punishment for disobedience. Sanders adds the next point. So he adds, in case of failure to obey, man or a human has recourse to divinely ordained means of atonement, in all of which repentance is required. So if the ordinary Jew intentionally broke the law and or, or violated the law, even less than intentionally, they were to repent, turn from that sin, confess that sin, and offer a sacrifice. This sounds very much like First John. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So repentance was required. As long as a person maintains a desire to stay in the covenant, that person has a share in God's covenantal promises including life in the world to come. Then he finally has the intention and effort to be obedient constitute the condition for remaining in the covenant, but they do not earn one's place in the covenant. So there is a, um, a fairly clear presentation of how Judaism, rabbinic religion worked. And I have found I have found this to be very helpful time and time and time again in my life as I've worked with Jewish literature. I've, I've said, I think this best explains it. It seems to work for me um, for understanding how it works. So um, I'm going to Skip all the way back to page 422, where Sanders is going to put together the pattern of covenantal religion, covenantal gnomism, as the pattern of religion in Judaism. And he starts with this. The pattern or structure then is this. God has chosen Israel and given the law. The law implies both God's promise to maintain the election and the requirement to obey. God rewards obedience and punishes transgression. The law provides for means of atonement, and atonement results in maintenance or reestablishment of the covenant relationship. All those who are maintained in the covenant by obedience, atonement, and God's mercy belong to the group which or that will be saved. 
All right. An important interpretation, Sanders adds, of the first and last points is that election and ultimately salvation are considered to be by God's mercy rather than human achievement. All right. Now, what difference does this make? It makes all the difference in the world when you see Paul use the term works of the law. Here's how the post-German world uh, that Sanders is characterizing and describing with people like Franz uh, uh, Weber, and then it moves into people like Boltmann, Strock, and Billerbeck, a lot of these people, and they were warned at the time many times that they were wrong. When they when people who have grown up with that view see works of the law, they immediately think that people are trying to earn favor with God like the Pharisees, like Judaism as a works religion. That's what they think. But Judaism didn't have a works-based religion in the sense that you had to accumulate sufficient merit in order to be saved. Judaism is a covenant election-based religion. It's not to say that there aren't statements, say in 4th Ezra and other texts, where you see a stronger emphasis upon works and even connecting it to final redemption. But uh, I often try to be fair with this and say, you know, St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 gets pretty close to this himself. And Jesus talking about rewards, um, that's pretty close to the Jewish world. So what does it mean? Now, Sanders would say that uh, that works of the law were uh, that you could not be saved uh, in, in Christian categories by being Jewish. Jimmy Dunn, my professor, narrowed that and said that works of the law pertain to those laws and observance of those laws that had to do with distinguishing Jews from Gentiles, and in particular, it had to do with things like circumcision, food laws, uh, table fellowship, um, uh, Sabbath keeping. These are the sorts of things that Paul brings up whenever he's talking, whenever he gets specific about things uh, in the context of talking about works. So uh, Sanders's main point is that Judaism of the Tanaitic literature is a covenant-based religion in which works are the ordinary actions of obedient Jews who are in the covenant by God's election, God's mercy, and God's grace, and that forgiveness is granted to anyone who goes to God in repentance and offers a sacrifice or confesses sin. Yeah, and okay. it's not, not necessarily them trying to work themselves in as opposed to express their inness that has come from God's election and, and cho choice. So I wonder exactly. how— Exactly. Chaz, I like that. It expresses their inness. Yeah. It's not something that they do to get in. It expresses that they are in and they want to maintain themselves as obedient. Just think of this. People in normal churches uh, who are growing in their Christian faith— want to do the things that are considered good Christian behaviors. Right. They're not doing those in order to be saved, though they feel guilty when they don't do them. 
and they feel that God's, let's say, disapproval is upon them. No, they do these things because they know these are the things that Christians are supposed to do who follow Jesus. So mm-hmm. it's very similar on that one. Yeah. And so I wonder how this understanding and what you've just explained here, how it impacts a passage like in Romans 9, um, verses 31 and 32, where Paul says, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Uh, We've been talking about this in our class quite a bit, and I wonder if you can kind of unpack that a little bit, given the um, uh, perspective of E.P. Sanders and um, in light of this passage here. Yeah. um, I don't know uh, what Sanders says about Romans chapter 9, verses 31 to 32, but I'm going to look it up to see if he actually uh, brings this up. But uh, we're going to look at this uh, text in class um, next week. Um, okay, he has a brief note on page 538. I don't think he has much to say about it. But um, in the old perspective, or in the perspective characteristic of the people that Sanders is going after um, tooth and nail, um, they would say that uh, what happened, what was wrong with Judaism was that they did not trust God, but they tried to earn favor with God. Whereas the Christian, the Christians were trusting God. The new perspective would say that Paul is writing Romans 9. I'm not saying this for all new perspective people. That Paul writes Romans 9 through 11 to um, explain that one one's privilege in God's election is not determined by what one does, but by one's by God's grace, and that God's grace and God's election is a privilege that God affords to certain people at moments in time to forward his plan to get to the Messiah. So some people in the new perspective emphasize that this is not about individual salvation, but this is about group. But the Jimmy Dunn line would emphasize, and I think this is pretty important, is that what what secures a person uh, or what leads to a person being chosen in God's line of leading to the Messiah is not what they've done, uh, but, but their trust in God, and that the Jews, who the Jewish believers, who are opposing what Paul is teaching— believe that one has to become a Jew, so they believe in their elective privilege, starting with Abraham and the covenant election. They believe that covenant election has secured for them a place in the line, and Paul is saying God all along has acted in very surprising ways. Um, So uh, that would be a typical, those would be the typical ways that most Christians uh, theologians, commentaries, experts try to explain Romans nine thirty one to thirty two. Yeah, I think that's important that you point out too about the difference between community versus individual, which uh, I, I feel like so much of the time, just the way I've read and understood Judaism and a lot of salvation texts, is by the individual, as opposed to 
I think what Sanders kind of helps support is the fact that, hey, look, this is they're understanding this more as a community and um, the choosing and salvation of the community um, over just a, an individual experiencing that. Well, I think that's right. But the, the text the text here is uh, is not so much about salvation and it's not so much uh, solved by group versus individual as it as it is a contrast of ways of responding to God's revelation. All right. So what are we to say, Paul says, Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness through faith. But Israel, now this is the people of God, covenant people, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, they were following the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? And we'll have to close with this. And Paul says they did not achieve that um, goal because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith but as if it were based on works. Now, as of works. And the uh, this, this to me is one of the most important texts that challenge new perspective people. But in the context of Romans chapter 9 through 11, in the context of Romans 12 through 16 and 1 through 8, I think it, it can be argued pretty persuasively that Paul is uh, understands works as those behaviors that distinguish Jews from Gentiles, and that what is going on is they expected people to have to join the elective privilege of Israel, and Paul is saying, no, it's based on faith for anybody, and that's why in the next chapter, he's going to talk about faith, and he's going to move into the theme of Gentiles believing in Christ, and therefore, whether Jew or Gentile, if you believe in Christ, then you are justified. That's good. Well, um, next week we're going to talk about Dead Sea Scrolls. Anything anybody, everybody should be looking out for as they dig into the material for next week's conversation? Well, you know, I, th I think that people need to keep uh, the big picture in mind. And Sanders has the genius of repeating himself clearly enough as a good teacher so that people keep seeing the big ideas, and keep seeing these texts understood in their context. Great. Well, thanks, Scott, for uh, explaining that so well. I know that was a lot of material to get through today, um, but we appreciate you for that and appreciate you, our, our listeners, for joining with us. Don't forget that half-off deal that we still have available. It is only limited time, so um, about through the end of March, that's available. So make sure to um, do that right away, fill out that form, and I will send you an email. Hopefully it doesn't go to your junk mail. Check that just in case, uh, in, in case it did go there. But I also want to congratulate Sean Morgan and Greg Brower for sharing and um, for being the winners of our, our drawing that we did to give away. So um, appreciate you guys for, for doing that and hope you enjoy the free copy of the book and that I have a bean coffee, which is a, a great company that um, supports um, those who are incarcerated, previously incarcerated to, to find a job. And so um, we're, we're glad to use and enjoy their coffee. But uh, anything you want to send everybody away with, Scott? Nope. Um, I have an, an urgent phone call coming in, so I'm going to have to uh, bug out here. But uh, I want to thank people, and I hope people will read E.P. Sanders.
Agreed. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us. We look forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 